0: A quote attributed to Kofi Annan, former Secretary General of the United Nations, goes like this. There is no trust more sacred than the one the world holds with children. There is no duty more important than ensuring their rights are respected, that their welfare is protected, that their lives are free from fear and want, and that they can grow up in peace. We do everything to protect our kids. Car seats until age however old. Late night urgent care visits when they're sick, swim lessons, karate lessons for self-defense, life lessons in the car on the way home from school, often to ears who want nothing to do with hearing them. There is literally no parent who would answer no if asked the question, do you do everything you can to protect your child? And yet there is a threat that has existed since the beginning of time aimed at our kids, and it's one not many parents care to talk about because of how dark and disturbing it really is. Sexual assault incidents against children are all too common. It's one of those topics that's almost impossible to get a true statistic on since the crime itself is so troubling and it's also so underreported. One report from the Crimes Against Children Resource Center says one in five girls and one in 20 boys is the victim of sexual abuse. Making it worse, oftentimes victims don't share their stories until years after the abuse happened, if ever, and usually to the shock and horror of their parents, who may have never known. Childwelfare.gov reports most sexual violence crimes committed against children come from those closest to them. 90% of victims, they say, know their abuser. And 30% of those children are abused by family members, relatives, family friends, coaches. These are people already in the child's orbit who have, over time, gained their and their family's trust, trading on that child's fear for their own concealment. But there's a change in the way families are dealing with this plague. These days, we talk. And we talk some more? Parents telling their kids what boundaries are and what it feels like when those boundaries are violated. Kids being encouraged to share those moments when they're feeling uncomfortable and being reminded it is never your fault. No more hiding away from fear of judgment or embarrassment, but rather a sharing of stories and resources to do our best to prevent this from happening and today's guest is part of that movement. Rosalia Rivera is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse herself, and she's the founder of Consent Parenting, a resource, website, and social media present that has no doubt reached millions of people, sharing advice on everything from exit strategies, that's how to tell kids how to get out of uncomfortable situations, to things like what a groomer acts like, the questions to ask before sending your child to daycare or school, and the question I know personally most parents struggle with, is a sleepover ever truly safe? I've been following Rosalia for years on Instagram, and I'm honored that she is taking time today to share her wisdom and tips with parents. Now, let's talk. Rosalia, thank you so much for joining me on the first episode of season four. Well, it's an honor. Thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm excited to be here. You uh, have been very candid about your own experience of survival and um, the trauma you experienced with sexual abuse as a child. And you've taken your trauma and turned it into a, a vital education source for parents and guardians. I kind of want to start... Um, at the beginning of why and how consent parenting was formed, and what it is about your approach that that makes it a little different and unique in a space that's frankly really really difficult for people to mentally inhabit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, sure. So I started because I am a mom. I have three children, and at the time when I was stepping into this work i was actually in the marketing um industry i worked as a uh, creative director and and had my own marketing agency I had done that for um, almost 18 years um, within that space. So different, different aspects of marketing and, and advertising. Um, I actually come from New York and, and worked in that space. So it wasn't anything that I was really consciously trying to do in terms of consent education. I was new to it at the time. And my, my son was five years old. My oldest um, was five years old at the time. And I um, wanted to put him into a summer day camp. And when I was going to do that, about a few days before he actually started, um, I started kind of having this, this anxiety kind of rise up in me. And um, I wasn't really even sure why. And I started realizing it was like I was very nervous about sending him somewhere where I actually didn't know everybody. And I didn't um, really know if my son was gonna be safe and was I putting him in the care of you know people who were safe. And so it started opening this conversation in my mind about, you know, how could I have not prepared and and how can I make sure that he's safe? And um, I really started digging into body safety education. And as I started doing that, I started realizing I was getting really triggered by it. And I I kind of was trying to figure out why was this so intense for me? Um, And it, it came to a head when I realized that a lot of memories that I had of my own childhood, Um, which had been buried, some memories that like just didn't make sense to me, um, all kind of came to the surface. And I think this is quite a common experience for a lot of parents who are survivors, um, where they start to have memories surface of their own trauma, same age as their child is now, you know, when it happened to them when they were children. And so I started um, realizing, like, I want to do this work, obviously, because I don't want the same thing to happen to my child. Um, I want to make sure that I'm educating myself, but I'm finding it really triggering and difficult. And so I started seeking out mental health support and I went to a hypnotherapist. I went for, you know, various years of therapy. And being able to then really start to continue doing this work, educating myself, um, being able to uh, see that, you know, I can do this, I can Mm -hmm. teach my children, I can do it from a place of empowerment instead of fear Mm -hmm. and being triggered. Um, And then once I was ready to like, you know, really establish this as something I could help other parents with, I realized that there was a gap for parents who were survivors as well. And that's where consent
0: parenting was sort of born from. Can we rewind and just, um, to the level of, of comfort that you have with this topic, sure. what it felt like to remember that abuse. You, you often hear the phrase, the body keeps the score. It's the title mm-hmm. of a wildly popular book. And we hear a lot about our ability as humans to bury unintentionally bury traumatic memories. Yeah. So I guess when I'm hearing you, I, I'm curious what that realization felt like. Was it imagery that came up when you realized what had happened to you? Was it a sensation? Did it only come out in hypnotherapy?
1: Yeah, it was actually a bit of both. And part of it was also because I knew that my sister was, you know, my sister's also a survivor and and she's given me permission to share her story now um, because I knew that before. I knew that my sister had been abused. Um, We had found out about that year's prior to me becoming a parent. Um, it was actually around the time when she was be- becoming a parent that she was uh, sharing her story about it. And so I, I started kind of recognizing like this happened to my sister. And then when the memories surfaced for me, it made sense because it's the same abuser, our, our father. Um, and so it kind of hit me like a, a bag of bricks, you know, it was just oh like God. really, yes. this really intense realization, like, it, it just made a lot of sense. And and so physically, I was, you know, really triggered like the anxiety levels. I, I had a panic attack. You know, it was like a lot of uh, physiological, you know, responses to these memories surfacing and just, you know, little bits of memories. It wasn't like a lot. And I still have I, I'm sure I still have a lot of blocked memories. I'm not consciously trying to dig them up because I don't want to necessarily remember. I remember enough to know this definitely happened. Um, you know, there's so many pieces that started to make sense. Like, I remember, you know, my dad wanting to take me to Disney World. He had gotten this award from his business company that he, he worked at. And they had it, it was two tickets. It was and he wanted to take me. And I just remember not wanting to go. And I didn't, you know, looking back, I didn't remember why. I remember asking my mom, like, not to let me go. And she didn't understand, like, why I wouldn't want to go to Disney. I was about 10 years old. And, you know, just like things like that just started surfacing. And, and it made sense connected to the other memories that came up. So mm-hmm. the, when I went to a hypnotherapist, I really just wanted to confirm it was like, is this real? Or am I like, making things up, you just get really confused, and you're really um, disoriented, you know, by a lot of the things that
0: kind of come up. So it was and- really helpful to, to get someone, you know, to help me with that. Right. And I would imagine, too, that your your sort of conscious mind is trying to square its experience with maybe positive memories. You also had of your abuser with this monster yeah. image, which is unfortunately, as as we know, those two that duality can exist in people. So I can imagine that that would be really difficult to kind of try to reconcile those two versions of, of your father that clearly existed.
1: Yeah, I I mean, at the time, I remember, I mean, I hadn't spoken to my father in in years at that point anyway, because of what happened with my sister. And he um, when I had confronted him about what what my sister had told me, he initially denied it. And I, I knew that he was lying. I just in my gut knew and I knew my sister wouldn't lie about something like that. So when I had confronted him and he had denied it, I, I decided that I was going to sever ways because I knew that he was lying and I knew that, you know, he was he was a toxic person. Like my parents had split up when we were young. Um, and, and fortunately that that divorce helped prevent me from having many more years of, of abuse happen. Mm-hmm. So I think a part of it was also that I didn't have that connection with him. and And so a lot of the sort of good memories that I had were kind of, pushed to the side anyway and it was mm-hmm. it was really just this confirmation of like absolutely this is this this has to be real because it would make sense that I was the next you know I was younger than my sister so I was sort of that next in line victim mm-hmm. you know um and so it was just it, i think it was saddening I, I think there was a lot of sadness more than anything um mm-hmm. and also you know of course anger and frustration that that he he you know had continued to do this and and I'm actually in the process of currently debating, like, do I want to pursue legal action because, um, you know, I'm at the point where I want to make sure he's not doing it to anyone else. And also there's a lot of conflict of like, you know, what's that going to do in terms of um, his family? I'm sure, you know, my father's side of the family, I'm sure, is going to protect him as most you know, uh families of abusers do, unfortunately, is that it's very hard for them to believe that someone they know could do this. And so I know I'm gonna be up against, you know, the the sort of backlash from family members and even, you know, people who know him who are friends, that that they will have to sort of reckon with that. Right. So there's yeah. there's a lot to consider when you're when you're pursuing a, a legal action case on, on something that happens that many years ago. And, and it's
0: particularly within the family. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm thinking of a similar incident and it's someone that, that we knew personally and, you know, the trial happened and it divided everyone. And, and mm-hmm. I hate to like, gosh, you never ever want to leave space to defend a predator But these people obviously have had completely different experiences with this adult than the child has. It's just it it really blew my mind because as a parent, my instinct, I'm sure yours is every parent's is like if my kid said the sky was neon green, I'd be like, yep, it is. You know, like I believe them. I believe their perception of the world. I believe that no child can be motivated to lie. I mean, I don't want to get into like, I'm I'm sure there are instances and I'm thinking of like the the craze that went through when it was like England in the eighties for like the satanic panic kind of things, but that's a different mm-hmm. discussion, but like no kid could be motivated to lie about this is what I'm saying. And I, I can.
1: Yeah. Well, statistically speaking, it's only one to 2% of cases that are actually um, fraudulent. Right. And so that's a very, like we're talking about 98% of kids who. T- you know, t- tell this mm-hmm. are telling the truth. Um, and that one to 2% is usually motivated by
0: another adult. Diff- another, another adult. Yeah. Right. So, And it's usually to like, for a gain of their own personal desire to like money yeah. or influence or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And-
1: so it, it, it's something that, you know, I think even for people as adults, when they're sharing this, like it's incredibly difficult to come forward about something like this, like what adult wants to, you know, what's the gain that they're going to get? Like, I think a lot of people say, oh, well, they're going to ruin that person's life. Well, that person ruined their life and they're yeah. actually trying to still pick up the pieces, right? So I think, um, you know, we we have to at least at the very minimum give survivors um, the benefit of, of, you know, acknowledging their experience and, and saying, well, you know, they're coming forward for some reason it's likely that it is true
0: and we should at least give them that support. Absolutely. I mean, I, I I see no other, no other option. I mean, um, I have been friends with people who have waited years often into their adult lives to come out similar to maybe your story with their own experience. And I wonder if you could speak to the people who are really resonating with what you're saying right now. Maybe they were a victim of, childhood sexual abuse, but haven't had the courage to name the person because of fear of disrupting a family dynamic or a social circle, or who maybe just have so much shame attached to it. What can you say to those people who want to air this and who want to start healing, but are are stuck at that first step?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to have support, to know that you have some support first, because it's it's incredibly um, courageous to come out and, and share about this. Not because there's anything shameful about what happened in terms of you had no part in that. Right. I think a lot of survivors feel guilty that like if they were children and they didn't tell anybody, then, you know, people, what are people going to think? Or people are going to say, why didn't you say something sooner? Or, you know, why, um, why would you come out with it now? Why, why don't you just let it go if it was so long ago in the past, right? There's so many unfortunate responses that people do get and that victims, you know, or survivors do expect. So that prevents them from wanting to say anything and, Mm -hmm. and just the fear of being blamed, you know, there's so much victim blaming that still happens today. So, I completely understand if you're in that space thinking, you know, I want to finally say something, but I'm still afraid to. The first step is really to get support. You know, talk to someone who you trust and talk to someone who you know is going to believe you and support you. And that's a very first sort of step that you can take to go, okay, I think I can do this. I think I have someone, you know, who's got my back and can help me in this journey, because it is a journey. Yeah.
0: And and who was that person for you, your sister or who was the person that sort of you felt like gave you permission to share?
1: Um, I think it was a combination of my my husband, um, who's very uh, understanding and supportive and also my family, like my my sister and, um, you know, just being a, like saying, I'm going to come out with this. You know, Mm -hmm. I I don't want to protect him anymore um, because in a a way, like you feel like you're protecting him by not saying something and being public about it um, because people have this perception of who that person is. Right. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, offenders are really, really good at grooming, not just the children, but the, the people in their children's lives and and. You know, the communities at large. I mean, the our church that we went to every Sunday thought he was such a stand-up person and such a honorable man. And so you know, they actively do this so that it is hard for people to believe when a child comes out about it and says, "You know, or even an adult, oh, but he's such a nice person." I mean, you look at Larry Nastar. he was the founder of an autism center in his community. Like nobody looked at that and said, "Oh, of course he's an offender. Like, you know, the, the, it was the complete opposite. Like nobody wanted to believe it. Mm-hmm. So you're, you know, for survivors, like that's what they're up against. A lot of times it's like these people who really worked hard to create mm-hmm. these squeaky clean images so that nobody believes them. Right. And, uh, and so that was a uh, part of, of, you know, getting that permission also for my family to say, look, I'm going to come out with this. And are you okay with that? Because, you know, you're obviously part of this family. So it, it was um, something that they felt they, they really encouraged me to do it if I felt like I wanted to do it. And mm-hmm. they were, I think it's been healing for them even as well, right. because in sharing my story and sharing their story, I mean, my mom was a, in a sense, a survivor of him as well, because I know that he, she wasn't always, like, I think a lot of people forget that marital rape is a real thing and it's not you know something that people really understand or talk about very often so i mean he was just a serial offender and um so to me it felt i think it was healing for everybody involved who was part of that you know circle that he was he was abusing
0: yeah it's it's always there's there's the the sense of the unique sense of betrayal too uh, i'm sure of like them not being able to reconcile, okay, wait, this isn't who I knew. And then you feel like, was I, was I a fool for 20 years? I was Mm. married to this man, or I knew this person in our community or this church leader. So every, it may, this is what really pisses me off too, Rosalia. We are so eager to live in our comfort and to live with our current version of who people are and how they are that when we're challenged with that, that it would, who it can't be. Well, it can't be, he Mm -hmm. volunteers. 10 hours a week. Like that, I feel like is an important message for maybe this didn't touch your family specifically this issue, but, but to hear, you need to sit in that discomfort. If you hear this accusation about someone you may think very highly of sit in that, imagine what it must feel like for the child coming forward. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, kids are not going to invite this type kids don't understand drama really, but they would never invite that in without, having a reason to. It just really, yeah, it's yeah. just the whole idea of people worried about their
1: their image
0: or about, it's just really, it's a frustrating yeah. part of this discussion.
1: I love that you said that, like, you know, people need to sit with the discomfort of that information, because I think that's part of what prevents people from wanting to accept this reality is that, It it, it, like you said, you know, it makes them confront their own experience of that person and to challenge it and say, oh, my gosh, is that is that really possible? Um, I think people just want to quickly dismiss it because it's just so it's such an ugly reality to have to face. And Mm -hmm. it also challenges their sense of reality with all kinds of things. Right. It's like if I was fooled by that, what else am I being fooled by? Right. So it's like I don't want to I'd rather not accept that that's real. Um, so I think that that's, I love that you said that because yeah, people do really need to just sit with the discomfort and go like, okay, maybe that is possible. And, you know, maybe this child really needs my support first instead of, you know, looking at this adult and saying, Oh no, that's impossible. Like maybe it is possible. And, and when, the more that we look at the news too um, and and case after case after case, this mm-hmm. is the classic pattern people go, I can't believe I, I've known him all my life or, you know, I grew up with him and we went to school together there was this really amazing podcast. And for anyone who has the stomach to listen to it, it's called hunting warhead.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's the
1: story of this, um, basically this, this pedophile who, had was running one of the largest um, dark web communities forums of pedophile communities um, before he got caught. But when they interviewed him after, and they interviewed people who knew him for years, including you know this one woman who was like friends with him from from university or, or high school even, um, and then she ended up having a child, and he was still trying to sort of connect with her. Found out that he almost abused her child, but she'd known him her whole life, and she was just so dumbfounded, like could not believe. She's like, I had him in my home. He like hung out with my child. I've known him forever. Like, I just could not believe it, you know? And so this is just, this is how it they operate. They, uh, they try to like seem like a completely normal person who mm-hmm. would never hurt anybody who has no interest. And like, we just have to open our eyes and, and realize that this is, this is how they operate. So we can't, you know, just dismiss it.
0: Let's keep on that vein of conversation, how groomers often... Um, draw in their victims? Um, I'm sure anyone who's done even a, a modicum of reading on this topic has seen these crazy statistics that up to 90% of children who are victimized know their their abuser. And it's very chilling. But what can we as parents look out for? Certain types of behaviors in adults or things that are happening that may indicate someone is attempting to groom a child?
1: Yeah, so grooming is, is something... I'm like always happy to talk about because people don't know enough about it still and it is exactly what you said it's the way that that they gain access to families and to children and so what they are looking for are certain vulnerabilities so um an offender is going to look for a family that perhaps needs you know maybe a mother who is um either single or you know the father's away for work a lot Um, they need, you know, a lot of support, whether that's financial or, you know, physically present to help with childcare and things like that. So they're looking for that. But even if you're, you know, a very affluent family, you, you could still be groomed because they're looking at also the behaviors of the child, like what kind of temperament does the child have? Are they very shy? Are they, you know, are they not good at setting boundaries? Um, Are they maybe lacking attention? You know, maybe there's parents that are working a lot and the child doesn't get enough sort of parent time, right? So those kinds of things. And that doesn't matter if it's like that, that doesn't um, have anything to do with socioeconomic, you know, uh, status. So, they're just looking for vulnerabilities that they can sort of find a way in and you know if you're a parent and you get someone who's suddenly like constantly offering help and constantly offering to take your child somewhere or to pick them up you know or to like care for them um oh why don't you guys go have a night out and you know I'll take care of you know Johnny tonight so if you're finding someone who's like constantly offering that up that's a bit of a red flag um another one is you know they show a sort of inordinate like interest in your child or wanting to spend a lot of time with them, um, in ways that don't kind of seem that normal for an adult. Like most adults Mm -hmm. want to hang out with adults. And, you know, if you're finding that someone's like really good with kids and they would rather hang out with kids than you, like that's another (laughs) red flag. Um, if you're seeing that they're giving gifts to your child, um, particularly if they're, you know, maybe not telling, they're telling the child not to necessarily tell the parent and you find out about it big red flag like you know adults shouldn't be asking kids to keep any kind of secret even if it seems like an innocent secret that's kind of a gateway to test the child and see if they're willing to keep any kind of secret maybe they're not being educated so they're looking for signs of like you know body safety is not being taught in the home and you know kids aren't being taught how to set boundaries or the child doesn't know how to set boundaries and the parent isn't necessarily helping support you know that that kind of boundary setting Um, Anything that sort of seems like overly physical where they're trying to sort of normalize touch with the child. So if there's a lot of tickling or there's a lot of roughhousing and there's a lot of, you know, kind of touch that maybe seems a little overly affectionate um, for a, you know, adult child relationship. Um, I think most parents would see that as a red flag, but even something like tickling and roughhousing where, Mm -hmm. you know, they're watching to see is this child going to set a boundary if they're uncomfortable Will they speak up? If they don't, well, that's child they're going to want to target. So there's a lot of different things. I have um, a workshop on this because, it, you know, when you, st- a lot of parents will go, well, some of those things, like I see my my parents do, like grandparents are doing, you know, like how can I tell the difference, right? And what I always say is, first of all, listen to your gut. And second of all, look at the pattern of signs, right? If you're seeing these as patterns and you're seeing them repeatedly and they may be increasing and you're seeing more and more of those signs, then definitely some type of grooming is, is potentially happening and you want to, you know, be able to intervene. This is, a, this is an opportunity for you to say, okay, well, it's time for me to talk to this adult and mm-hmm. say, hey, FYI, we're, you know, either teaching body safety or we're starting to teach body safety and, you know please respect our child's boundaries. If you, if you want to go in for a tickle, make sure you're asking. And if they say no, please don't, you know, so that's the kind of conversation you want to start having. You want to start intervening so that that grooming doesn't escalate and actually become abuse. And the last thing I do want to say also on that is just look out for like, is this, you know, if I have a gut sense that something's off with this person, but I can't point to anything and they look like they're, you know, overly, like, good, overly generous, like, maybe they volunteer at a church, or maybe they're, you know, doing all these things that look like you can't point a finger because they're just so squeaky clean. That's also, to me, another sign of, like, I'm just going to be a little more vigilant with this person instead of giving them free reign with my child.
0: I, you're talking, and I'm, like, physically getting sick, because there were so many times growing up, and, and thankfully, I, not, you know, did not experience sexual abuse that I'm conscious of, at least or recall, but I've had so many experiences where my body limits were, were, were pushed and I was uncomfortable and it was not family members, but even friends of the like, touching me and tickling me. And I remember mm-hmm. feeling so helpless and uh, it's, um, even to this day, like I see, one of my children being tickled and I have like a vis like it it was a violation and it was such a small violation relative to what could have happened. But still I knew as a child, this isn't right. This person shouldn't be doing this. And I didn't say anything. And so mm-hmm. now when, when I see one of my kids, you know, being tickled, even if it's like from like a trusted family, I'm like, as soon as he or she says you fucking stop you stop like you don't mm-hmm. know what you feel like that feeling of helplessness over your body i feel like so many women can relate to that we've yeah. all not unfortunately so many women can relate to it that uh, i love that you brought that up as a specific example these these behaviors were viewed as harmless in the 80s when i grew up and in the yeah. 90s to an extent and it was like oh well you know uncle joe wants a hug give him a hug or so-and-so wants to tickle you just, it's not a big deal or, and it's like, but it is. And so the, the, the conversation thanks in no small part to accounts and education like yours is changing. And I love being able to give my kids the ability to say, Hey, stop and have an adult respond to that and then learn. And, And I, here's what I say. I'm like, listen, you may think this is silly. Like, you know, that, that I'm being extra vigilant about tickling or, or like, you know, grabbing someone's shoulders, but My kids need to know that the behavior should be asked for it to stop. And it stopped. I don't want them to ever get comfortable letting something continue that is uncomfortable to them. I, so it's just like, makes me sick. There's just so many, everybody has had that experience in a mild form and, and teaching them at a young age that even small moments like that, they can exercise their, their autonomy is just so powerful.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I think a lot of people don't realize how these small moments make a big difference. They help build courage muscles, they help build boundary setting muscles, they help uh, kids understand how to respond if someone doesn't respect the the boundary that's being set, and how to address boundary crossings, because they will happen, you know, and that's You know, not specifically, uh, you know, sexual abuse related, but like just bullying and just, you know, being able to speak up when something, you know, they, they don't feel comfortable with happens and to be able to say, you know, even to report after the fact, Hey, you know, I told them to stop and they didn't stop and I didn't know what to do. And then having that conversation and helping your child learn how to work through those situations, learn how to, you know, develop uh, exit strategy skills and reporting skills. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just to to learn how to listen to their bodies and recognize early warning signs and maybe even be able to prevent a situation from happening because they picked up on those signs and they left before anything, you know, so just all of these, these small moments, um, their practice moments for the potential high stake situation, you know? So yeah, I always talk about like, just practice, practice, practice. Like yep. this isn't just about having one or two conversations or reading one or two books. This is about ongoing daily situations with siblings, with, you know, cousins, with, you know, aunts and uncles, with grandparents, with teachers, like whoever mm-hmm. it is, let your child learn how to set boundaries and be okay with it as a parent for them to even mm-hmm. set a boundary with you because it yes. makes a big difference
0: yes, teach them the tactics to set those boundaries and be okay saying no. Like the extra built-in sort of pressure of girls always feeling like they have to obey the rules is like an extra sort of challenge. But um, you recommend this book on your feed and I got it immediately when I saw it. It's called I Said No. And you speak specifically, and this book speaks specifically to what we're just talking about, exit strategies for kids. Can you run us through, what exit strategies look like and in, in what we can tell our kids that they can say if they're in an uncomfortable situation to get out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite books. And I always say to parents though, like don't start with exit strategies because that can actually be a little bit scary for kids. And, and this is usually what parents are afraid of anyway, right? Like they're like, how do I talk to my kids without scaring them? Do, do not start with exit strategies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. this, is, this is something that you want to teach after you've taught about body autonomy, boundaries, consent, uh, safe and unsafe touch, secret Mm -hmm. safety, then we can get into exit strategies, right? Because that really involves talking to your kids about like, you know, if you have a a funny feeling, if you see some red flags, right? So you have to teach what red flags are. So there's all these steps. Exit strategies are things that you want to be able to teach at the end. A three-year-old isn't really going to be able to to, to get an exit strategy down other Mm -hmm. than to be able to say no, which is really more boundary setting. Right, but okay. so, so just keep that in mind. I just want to preface with that. But exit strategies are essentially like the, the ways that a child, the behaviors that a child can imp- implement um, mm-hmm. when they see red flags or they start to feel uncomfortable or they, you know, recognize someone is doing something that's unsafe. This is what they would do to try to get out of that situation. But an exit strategy can also be what to do after a situation happens so it doesn't happen again. Right. So so even if your child is trapped in a situation, something unsafe happens, you know, God forbid, you know, it is abuse and and that happens. We want the child to be able to immediately report and not be afraid to tell someone, not wait a week or days or, you know, and and to be able to um, report to a safe person. Right. And to know that if that person doesn't believe you keep telling. So that's Mm -hmm. still considered an exit strategy. Um, But so essentially for kids, you know, exit strategies look different for different ages. So you know for a six-year-old, it could be, you know, listening to your early warning signs. Like if if your you know body is telling you this isn't safe, then getting out immediately, not waiting, not sticking Mm -hmm. around and saying, you know, oh well, these are my friends or this is someone I love or you know just listening to that. That feeling that you have and getting out of the situation. So that, you know, for a six-year-old would be, you know, running away, um, Mm -hmm. you know, going to find an adult, uh, you know, getting out of, you know, the room if the door is closed, like making sure that the door is open, like all of these kinds of of things. For an older child, let's say like, you know, someone, maybe a tween who has uh, access to a phone, an exit strategy could be using like the ex-parenting, X plan parenting um, strategy, which is based on a book by Bert Foulkes. Um, And I've heard a lot of people talk about this in different ways, but essentially the idea is if your child has um, a, a cell phone, they can text you the letter X if they feel like they're in an unsafe situation. And as soon as you get that, you know your child needs your help. You call them right away and you can make up whatever excuse you want. Oh, you know, something happened, some, some emergency, I need to pick you up right away. Where are you? So that they have an out and they, you know, it, that way they don't alert the offender or they don't alert their friends that, like, you know, they recognize that they're unsafe. They're not um, sort of outing themselves in that way. And, and yeah, they don't have to the parent, yeah, the parent can, get, can give them the out and then they go and pick them up right away. Um, depending on the, the child, you know, the age of your child, like if it's an older teen, they may may have made a mistake and been like, you know, I went to this party, I shouldn't have gone and I didn't tell you about it. And, you know, I think a lot of kids are afraid that they made a mistake or they, you know, didn't listen or they broke a rule and they're afraid of, of that out. So this is, this is a way that you can give your child that out without, you know, them feeling like they're going to get punished for having made a mistake. And unfortunately, a lot of times, especially for older kids, that's what happens is that they go, I did this thing my mom said not to do, I put myself Mm -hmm. in a situation that I shouldn't be in. And now I don't know how to get out. So you always want to give them a lifeline. And you know, that idea for that exit strategy is always um, something that they can count on to say, okay, my mom's Mm -hmm. not gonna punish me or yell at me, she's just gonna get me out of the situation. Because you've had that conversation. And you know, you say, my priority is your safety, not to Mm -hmm. punish you. Like for a lot of kids, that you've they've already been punished by the act itself of like right. putting themselves in that situation, right? So they don't need you to to punish them further. but, this gives them that that exit strategies that they really need that could save their life. So there's different exit strategies for different ages. Again, you know, it it depends on, you know, are you at school? Are you at home? Are you at a sleepover? Like you want to go through different kinds of scenarios at different stages where your Mm -hmm. child's going to be at a play date on their own. And how do they, you know, access you? And do they have a safety network? A safety network is part of having an exit strategy where, you have different adults that you can reach out to. So if mom isn't answering, mm-hmm. who else can I contact, you know, right. that can can come and get me?
0: Can we run through, Rosalia, sort of age bracket by age bracket, some great things that people should, parents should be implementing? Like maybe we could say zero to three and then three to six. Yeah, like, You tell me, because I'd yeah. like to really serve all the parents out there. And, and like you said, you brought up a really good point in talking about exit strategies, which is this is like, you know the, this is for the older child. We're not starting here. So to really serve everybody who's listening. And I think there's a real eagerness for this information. Maybe we start at the youngest age, what, and when we tell kids, and then just kind of work our way through the high school age. Yeah. So zero
1: to three, you're basically starting with, um, You know, really just talking to the adults in your child's life. So a a lot of this also has to do with like who else you're talking to besides your child. So it's not just about educating your kids. It's about educating the people in your kids' lives. So whether that's caregivers, parents, grandparents, whoever it is, that's going to be interacting with them. So Mm -hmm. zero to three is really about, you know, teaching them about body autonomy And for, you know, a child who's pre-verbal, who's obviously not even understanding everything you're saying, it's really about your intonation, your um, intention, you know, the fact that you're communicating with your child when you're changing their diaper instead of just doing it and not, Mm -hmm. you know, explaining what's going on. Right. Um, You can start to, you know, really just teach some of the basics. Your body belongs to you. Um, You know, you you have a right to set boundaries. This is what boundaries are. This is, you know, people should ask you before they, you know, just go in for a a hug or a kiss. That's called consent, you know. So some of these basics, kids can start to kind of understand between the ages of two and three. This is also where they're probably starting to potty train. So this is where you can start to introduce um, body literacy, which is, you know, the, the foundation of sex education. So you know, a lot of people go like, am I teaching sex ed to my, to, to my two-year-old? And it's like, well, body literacy is part of sex education. So it, you know, Literally, yes, you are. Um, and that's OK. Like these are some of the important basics um, that kids need to understand about their body. Right. So we want to normalize the, the correct names for body parts, um, not shame or try to create nicknames. Nicknames are, are not helpful at all, because if a child tries to report something and they're using nicknames like, you know, a, a person, maybe a teacher or whoever it is, might miss it. And they, you know, an offender might realize like, oh, there's some shame around these things. So I can, you know, groom this child so it can actually increase the, the likelihood of them being a target. Um, so, you know what? You want to start talking about body literacy and then introduce the idea of safe and unsafe touch. Um, so, this is now going into, you know, three to six years old. Um, this is where you want to start introducing um, the idea of secret safety, uh, helping them understand the difference between secrets, surprises, and privacy, um, really helping them understand that concept um, because that's a big part of what an offender uses to, to keep a secret, right. To keep them from telling, um, helping them understand the concept of a tricky person. And, uh, and then from there starting to understand the idea of intuition, listening to their body, mm-hmm. you know, their, their feelings, the physical responses, early warning signs, um, you know, so what's all the, what's of that a tricky
0: is person. Can you expound on that?
1: Yeah. So a tricky person is um, you know, we see this in, in, in story, storylines all the time, right? Like there's someone who seems to be a good person. Maybe they're behaving that way. They're, they're kind of, they're, they're obviously lying about who they really are. Um, and they have alter, you know, ulterior, uh, intentions. So for a kid, you know, you could point to something like, um you know the movie frozen where you know the prince in the first movie he seemed like a, a such a good guy but he turned out to be a bad guy so that would be you know a tricky person so that's a really simple way to explain it to kids it's like if you see a character you know the the wolf in in you know in um little red riding hood right mm-hmm. who oh, pretended yeah. like so so there's tons of examples of that, that that kids can really understand like oh this is someone who seems to be this way but they actually turn out to be this way and part of that is really to help kids um go to a parent and say you know my this person or my friend or you know my my grandparent told me this and they said not to tell anyone. And it's like, but I, I, you know, you told me no secrets and I don't know if they're a tricky person or not. So I'm checking with you, you know, so you want kids to come back and verify things and not just take them at face value from people. If Mm -hmm. there's something that doesn't feel right. And especially if it's something that goes against a body safety rule. Right. So helping kids understand that concept can really help them um, interrupt or disrupt a potential grooming pattern that's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to you know help them understand that, and then understanding red flag signs, right like so if somebody 's asking me to do something and they 're you know uh saying you know they're they're trying to bribe me or they 're trying to threaten me or they're you know so helping them learn about those red flag signs, and that 's that book I said no. Really helps lay yeah. those those kinds of things out, which is really great. Um, so that's three to six, and then six to nine, you're now starting to really um, begin to introduce more of those exit strategies, um, depending on their age. You know what kinds of exit strategies you want to want to introduce, and then how that kind of um, morphs into digital safety, online safety, porn safety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know exit strategies around like what happens if you know you come across inappropriate content or someone tries to show you inappropriate content. Um, you know, wait, can we pause there for
0: a second? I have yeah. a 10-year-old. I have a 10-year-old, and this is sending shivers down my spine. Um, I don't know how to talk to him about the big, bad internet. Like, I, know, we've talked about don't ever share your real name on Roblox or Fortnite. or We know the basics. We know that people aren't as they seem online. We've covered that. But the porn discussion and the I don't know who's showing him things. I know mostly what he's consuming at home. I'm hoping that I do. But... Would please give me a script just like, up, please. I, I don't know what yeah. to say, you know, I don't know how to start it. And it's clear that this is going to be an issue soon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, so there's two really great books that I recommend. Um One is uh it's actually the same book, but it's, it's set up for junior and uh teen and tween, tween and teens. Um There's it's called good pictures, bad pictures. And I, I actually changed the name to safe pictures and unsafe pictures. Cause I, I really try to stay away from the term good and bad. It, it, for various reasons, which I won't get into right now, but right. Um, but those books are really helpful to introduce the idea of unsafe pictures that you know if you come across these kinds of pictures here's what to do mm-hmm. um, and so I would recommend those books as really good starting points to this this porn conversation because I think a lot of people go, well, then I have to explain what porn is, and really, the thing is that you want to start with some of the basics around sex education right so I, I always say because I am a sexual literacy advocate, I do believe that kids should be given age appropriate, shame free evidence, informed information. Um, And it starts with literacy, you know, it starts with like, body literacy. But then from there, you want to start talking about, you know, reproduction, you want to start talking about this idea of sexual activity, which is something that only adults do with adults that they don't do with children that teens don't do with children, like this is, you know, uh, an activity that adults do. Um, you can, you know, depending on your child's age, you can talk about the fact that it's done for reproduction. And you, and, you know, as they get a little bit older, you can talk about the fact that, you know, this is something that adults do for pleasure, but it's, again, only between consensual adults, not between. So you want to always introduce that factor of, like, safety and what's age-appropriate and non-age-appropriate. So if you've had those conversations, um, you know, before your child gets to, you know, 9 or 10, hopefully, you can then introduce this idea of what porn is, which is essentially, you know, this adult content that's created, um, you know, that is really only for adults. It's not meant for kids to look at. It's, it's, uh, you know, not even realistic, you know, so you can start to kind of introduce some of those ideas as your kid gets a little bit older, you can then start to, see, you know, if they have questions about it, because unfortunately, inevitably, there's mm-hmm. someone at school who's gonna talk about it, It's who's yeah. going to bring it up, Who, who has been exposed to it, um, and they're going to ask about it, you know, and they're going to come home and say, what is this and what is that? And you're, you you have to be prepared for that. So there's lots of books that I also recommend, uh, which is why I have a book club, because there's so many great books out there that really get into the nitty gritty of it. Um, and, and even workshops like Melissa Carnegie, founder of Sex Positive uh, Parents. She just came out with a workshop on how, how to have these conversations specifically porn conversations with kids that are age appropriate and, and help them to um, understand it. Because here's the thing, you as a parent, if you shame them about these topics, they're just going to start going elsewhere for the information. So it's yeah. better if you are open mm-hmm. about it and you can be as sort of fact-based, neutral. And, um, you know, this is not to say that you're condoning it, because I mm-hmm. certainly don't condone it. Mm-hmm. But it's really just to say, look, this is how people are, Um, unfortunately uneducated about it, how kids in particularly are uneducated about it. And so they think that it's okay, or they've seen it and they think it's okay, but it's actually not. And you know, here's some more information about it. Like it's bad for, you know, the developing brain and it's not even realistic. Like this is really Mm -hmm. not even how people actually do, you know? So there's a lot of conversations that you need to have. It's not one talk of like, here's the porn talk. Like, it's like, you know, yeah.
0: Okay, wait, so (laughs) here's what I'm taking away. I should have had this, should I've had the birds and bees conversation? Let's like tap into your sexual literacy expertise for a second. Should I have had the conversation before age 10 with my son? Like and yeah. how do I? Okay. Oh God. Okay. We have some to do this weekend. Okay. And how? Ex, like, can you just script me for that particular? Hey, buddy. There's something that Dad and I have been wanting to talk to you about, or just like yeah. write it for me. Just give me give me thirty seconds, please. Yeah. <laughs>
1: no worries. I, you know, a lot of parents find themselves in the same shoes. So don't feel like, you know, you missed the boat. There's, there's always time and it's never, ever, ever too late. So I just want to give parents that reassurance that, you know, even if your child is 12 and you haven't had this conversation, it's never too late. So the way that I, I like to introduce these things is with books. It makes it so much easier for the parent. It gives them language. It gives them you know, visuals that the child can look at, that, that it opens up those conversations and questions. So what I would recommend, there's a really great book called It's Not the Stork. And that is a it's great not. book. It's for age it's for ages four plus, but I really think it's like five and up. Five to ten is a really great age range to read this book, even you know for a 10 year old. So they're right. gonna probably find it very interesting. They're reading on their own too, so they're gonna be able to like dig into the book and start to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can use it as a great resource. It's not uh, there's another book that's called uh, It's Perfectly Normal. And that one is for really more, in my opinion, more for like 13 up. So it says it's 10 up, but I would say 13 up. Um, But, you know, it's not The Stork, fantastic starter for these conversations. It talks about the concept of reproduction and obviously talks about the idea of sex, but it doesn't go overboard. It doesn't, you know, it's just kind of like introduces it. And then Mm -hmm. kids can start to ask questions from there. The more books that you have around these topics, the better. Um, because kids, you know, you can say, okay, you know what, let's check this book and look at it Mm. together. Right. So it, it, it takes a lot of the pressure off of parents having to like come up with everything and become an instant expert. Mm. You have access to resources that can help you do that. And lots of videos too, like amaze.org also has some great videos that you can look up that will help you have some of these conversations as well. Okay,
0: amazed. At writing all this down, and guys, I, I'm gonna put this in show notes too because I, I know there are other parents who are curious, and and frankly, this is a part of I feel like the conversation we're having today too, which is the more educated kids are about their bodies and what should and shouldn't be happening, the more they can ultimately protect themselves. So thank you for working that in there. I know that was kind of like off the cuff. Um, I do do want to get in some questions that specifically came in from friends on Instagram and, um, we could like, you know, I don't want to call it a lightning round, but let's, we'll try to get through them rather on, on the quicker side, because there's a lot and there's still a couple other things I want to grab with you before we wrap up. So, um, there was a lot of talk about the sleepover on Instagram. Um, whether we should allow them, and if so, how to make them safe. So can you kind of speak to both elements of that question?
1: Yeah, so I'll start with this. I don't think sleepovers are very safe, especially in 2023 for most kids, unless they are probably 12 and up. Um, where kids have gone through all the body safety education, where they have the ability to, to exercise exit strategies. Um, and only if after you have kind of done your due diligence of making sure that the home that they're going to is safe. So this means, you know, finding out who lives there Are there older siblings. What is the access that they have to the internet? Is there any kind of supervision? What's the online safety practices that they have in the home, especially if there is an older sibling, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so those kinds of questions are really important for you to have the answers to before you can say yes to a sleepover and you know, if you are the one who's going to be hosting the sleepover because you feel that that's safer, making sure that you have certain practices in place. What is the sleep sleeping arrangement going to be? Is it going to be, you know, in the living room where everybody has sleeping bags, like a slumber party, or is it going to be in the bedroom? Is the door closed? You know, are you making sure that there's no devices that are available, that no kids are bringing devices, you know? So having some of that basic understanding is going to be really important. Okay.
0: So in other words, mostly there are no go for you personally, but if you're going to do it really, really vet the place yes. they'll be going. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, we, I feel like we covered this. Someone was asking how to approach the topic of like staying safe around potential predators with younger kids, but we kind of tapped into that. So I feel like we're covered there. Um, the 50, 50 rule, which is something that you've posted about on, on Instagram as well. Can you just quickly tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I really, um, I I think that it's not just about teaching kids about body safety to Mm -hmm. make sure that we reduce the risk and that will help for sure. Um, But more than anything, it's really we're teaching kids because we're helping them build skills and learning how to report because kids can't prevent abuse. That's our job. And so what we also need to be doing is talking and educating the adults in our kids' lives who are interacting mm-hmm. with them. So if that's, you know, the teacher or a babysitter or a daycare team, like having the conversation and saying, we're teaching body safety at home. This is what it looks like. This is how we practice it. This is how we would love for you to be part of that. Um, you know, Do you have questions? Can I support you in this education? You know, bring Bringing, Mm -hmm. you know, body safety books to show and tell to help them Mm -hmm. remember that you're having these, you know, so this really helps to reduce the likelihood of your child being targeted by a predator because predators are looking for the easiest target. And if your child's being educated, they're not an easy target. So we Mm want to, you know, reduce that likelihood, but we also want to spread awareness and education of this because the more eyes that our kids have on them, the mm-hmm. better it's going to be that, you know, if you, if grandma now knows what the grooming signs are and she sees that, you know, so-and-so is potentially exhibiting these signs, she's going to alert you as the parent and say, Hey, right. I, I noticed these things. And you can then, you know, intervene or be more vigilant or, you know, maybe not have unsupervised visits with that person. So it really helps to create more of a what, you know, uh, Feather Burkauer calls a prevention team Mm -hmm. and not just a a safety network, but also a prevention team with you.
0: Yeah. People who know what your family's rules are and how to respect them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Someone asked how to talk about. dangers of certain adults, I guess, who haven't had the birds and bees talk yet. So like, I guess they're asking how to teach people that there are bad people out there who might do bad things, but they haven't quite had the birds and bees talk yet. So they feel like they can't really correlate the two. What would you, what advice do you have for them? Um, yeah, that's
1: a tricky one because I would say go back to that point and have that conversation, have the birds and bees conversation and, you know, like just be, just be upfront about the fact that, you know, you're uncomfortable having this because you weren't taught this. And so, you know, you're stepping into this conversation um, a little bit nervous, but you're you're confident that you're going to be learning this together and that's really mm-hmm. what's important, you know? So go back and do that. And then at the same time, mm-hmm. talk about the concept of tricky people, really, because that's okay. really kind of where that stems from. And, mm-hmm. you know, kids kids aren't going to go, well, is that, you know, is everybody a tricky person in the world? Because you're going to say no. But I'm going to say what? yes. <laughs>
0: Live with mom forever. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep you safe. (laughs) Or you could say that too. (laughs) Overbearing mother here, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The other thing too is is just to to say, you know, like just as we see in storylines, like not everybody has our best Mm. intention, right? And so we want to make sure that we learn safety. That's the reason why we're talking about safety in the first place. Is because there's most of the world is good, but there's some people that aren't you know? And so we want to make sure that we can learn how to spot those people so Mm -hmm. that we can stay away from them so that we can be safe so that we, you know, and, and if it's someone that you, that you care about and you realize that they're not behaving like a safe person, it might be because they need to learn how to behave like a safe person. And so it kind of takes some of that pressure away from the child to go, you know, if uncle so-and-so who I love is starting to act weird, like, how do I tell mom without her, like, you know, yeah. punishing him or punishing me or whatever. And so we, the way that we present these conversations is important, like just being neutral matter of fact and saying, Hey, you know, not everybody knows about body safety, which is very true, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so we want to let kids know we, you know, want them to be safe. And that's really all that matters at the end of the day for us is their safety. And so no matter what it is, come and talk to me so that
0: I can mm-hmm. help you navigate that situation. Okay, one more quick um, Instagram question, and then we'll we'll wrap things up here. Um, the treat reward association—I know you touched this, touched on this on your website a little bit too. Um, as parents, we're often we often motivate our kids through bribery. Let's be honest, and I'll give you a treat if you X mm-hmm. Y Z. Tell us about the dangers of the treat reward association, and what other options we can have to just straight up bribe our kids if we can't do that. <laughs> Well, I
1: think it's important um, that we just have the awareness of it because the Mm -hmm. more awareness we have, the less we're actually going to do it anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think it's just important to reward kids for their effort and just Mm -hmm. to say, you know, more than just the treat itself and just to start, like, I think it's really hard when kids are young and they're, you know, in their toddler years, they're not thinking with their logical brain, right? They're mostly operating out of their animal brain. So it's not the easiest thing to do with the toddler. But as your child gets a little bit older, you want to start um, talking more about their responsibility over themselves, right? So a lot of times we're like, we want to say, oh, if you brush your teeth, you know, then Mm -hmm. you'll get extra five minutes of game time or whatever. Um, We want to try to start staying away from that, just becoming more conscious of it and just having more conversations with kids about like, well, you know, if your body belongs to you, that means you're responsible for your body. That means you have to start taking care of it. And what's, you know, if you don't want to brush your teeth, Okay, you know right. it's your body and you're going to, you know, end up probably having cavities, but I'm going to have to start pulling the candy because mm. if you're not brushing your teeth, candy's making it worse, so we're going to have to cut out the candy. So you're actually yeah. just helping them understand natural consequences to behavior instead of the reward treat situation which actually just makes them go, "Okay, well if I do this, then I get this" because we're kind of setting them up for grooming. By doing that. So we just have to be conscious of it and find different ways to motivate them, which is more about helping them understand if my body belongs to me, which a lot of kids will pull, you know, they'll be like, well, it's my body and I don't want to shower today. So, well, okay, that's fine. But then, you know, these are going to be the natural consequences. So not punishing them, but not necessarily rewarding the behavior, just helping them to see the connections to why certain things have to happen. Well, if you don't want to put your seatbelt on, then we're not going to be able to leave and go to XYZ place, right? So, mm-hmm. just trying to get creative um, you know, depending on the situation, thinking ahead, you know, so that you can um figure out like what's the incentive for them to have a good consequence or a bad consequence. That's mm-hmm. natural to
0: the situation hmm Okay. Yeah. I mean, all of this makes sense. And it really, your advice really dovetails with like really practical parenting advice too, like natural consequences and telling kids what things really are rather than a fake story. So, you know, yeah. I'll kind of see the broader picture when you yeah. dive, into, dive into this. Um, I guess as a final thought here, Rosalie, I, I would like to leave parents with, um, not hope, that's the wrong word, but a little bit of optimism that they can they can protect their kids. I know raising three kids myself that it often feels like the deck is stacked, right? We're worried about their safety. We're worried about, you know, people trying to hurt them. We're worried about really everything, their health and the people that they're hanging out with. And if they're getting bullied, they, it can feel like if you're not doing a thousand things every day to preemptively help and advise and protect them that we're going to drop the ball. So I guess what I'd like to end with is just some encouraging words for parents, understanding that this is a reality that unfortunately exists, but, um, what we can do to protect them and and how to keep our spirits sort of positive while we are.
1: Yeah. I, so I think first is look is, you know, the perspective we have just look at it just the same as you would with, you know, they they have to wear a bike helmet and they have mm-hmm. to get, you know, like learn how to swim so that they don't drown in a pool. Like there's just some things that we have to do. And this is just one of them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, We don't have to look at this negatively and say oh i have to Mm -hmm. teach my child about these horrible dangers in the world it actually is about teaching them about their rights and if we look at it from the perspective of Mm -hmm. they have body rights and if they learn about those body rights early that's super empowering for a child right because Mm -hmm. we have to remember the perspective is like they're little we're big we always Mm -hmm. seem like you know the authoritarian here but we can actually give them that sense of autonomy that helps them develop you know, boundary setting skills, which are incredibly important in relationships. So just even that aside from, you know, not thinking about sexual abuse, but just thinking about how empowering this education is going to be for your child and how it even helps you as a parent learn how to set boundaries in your own life. Like you're going to end up examining a lot of the values around that, around, you know, your, your sexual education values around, you know, how you perceive people and being more aware and like leaving your cognitive biases behind. Like there's such an amazing educational process that you go through. It doesn't have to be scary. If you, if you just shift your perspective to looking at this as something that's empowering and ultimately is going to give your kids life skills that they can pass on. On, generation after generation how amazing is that going to be mm-hmm. that in you know 20 years from now the world could be different because of how you educated your child oh,
0: it's it's amazing it's like it makes me a little like sappy and weepy to think about it because we do learn with every generation and we yeah uh, it's it can be emotional too because like you said when you start to examine the things that we experienced or were taught and you you realize Of course, our parents were doing their best and there's no way that even with the quote unquote best parenting, we can prevent everything. But like, you know, you you start to realize you, you, I don't know, you heal yourself and you Mm -hmm. re-experience the emotion sometimes. But like you said, it leaves you with that little bit of optimism that, okay, at least I know now a little bit better every year, every generation, every, you know, set of parents and children, we can, we can do a little bit better. So, yeah. And you'll grow
1: with it every year. It's not anything that, you know, you're going to learn overnight and you're going to get right away and you're not going to be perfect and you're going to make mistakes and all that is okay. It's part of the process. And there's, there's no way to circumvent that other than to just, you know, take baby steps one step at a time. And if you, you know, want to dive into it more power to you, if you can't, and you need to take baby steps, that's okay too. Just go at your, Mm -hmm. your process and your steps. Just don't stop. Like, that's Mm -hmm. what I always say to people. If you find yourself stopping, it's probably because you need some additional support. So seek the support that you need in order to continue doing this education, whether that's, you know, mental health support or getting a support team with you, you know, groups of friends or or a partner, you know, like whoever it is, make sure that you have the support to keep doing this if you feel like you're struggling and you feel like you're going to stop because that's that's where you are going to say, okay, you know, I need help because I don't want to stop doing this but I don't know how to keep doing it. And so, you know, finding resources that are also, if you are a survivor that are trauma informed, that can help you through that process. Um, But just don't quit. You know, that's really the only thing. Yeah.
0: You have been amazing and so generous with your wisdom and your tips. Um, Rosalia, please tell us where people who want to learn more about you and your group can go to find more.
1: Sure. Thank you. So it's uh, a is my website. And I have tons of resources there, um, blogs and, you know, PDFs, you can download workshops. Um, and I, you can also listen to my podcast about consent.com. Um, so those are the two main places, but I'm also really active on Instagram. So if you want to reach yes. out, you can DM
0: me there. The best follow guys, please on Instagram, give her a follow and, and check out like the whole library of content is just amazing. Uh, Rosalia, thank you so much for spending time with me today
1: thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of We Gotta Talk. Please leave a rating and review. Those help our show to get out to people who might find it useful and or entertaining. Thank you so much for your support of this show. And please follow along on Instagram at Sunny or check out the blog at wegotatalk.com slash blog.